0: Now we have the final the final event uh, which is to welcome uh, Professor Sunaina Meyer of the University of California, Davis, uh, for our final keynote address. Uh, and Professor Meyer is a Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Davis. Her research and teaching focus on Asian, Arab and Muslim and American youth culture, migrant rights, and refugee organizing. She focuses also on transnational movements, challenging militarization, imperialism, and settler colonialism. Meira was a Mellon slash ACLS Scholars and Society Fellow for 2019 to 2020, and she's been doing a transnational research project focusing on Arab refugees and immigrants in the Bay Area and in Athens, Greece. A new community-engaged project is focused on Yemeni Americans in Oakland and the impact of the pandemic. The Muslim bans. Oh, there's some strange-sounding <laughs> interferences. This um, could be mentioned the Muslim bans and the war in Yemen. Okay. She's the author of five monographs, including The 9-11 Generation, Youth, Rights and Solidarity in the War on terror and boycott, the academy and justice uh, for Palestine. She published a book based on ethnographic research uh, in Palestine. It's uh, Gilles Oslo, Generation Oslo, Palestinian Hip-Hop, Youth Culture and the Youth Movement. And she also co-edited with Pia Chatterjee a book called The Imperial University Academic Repression and Scholarly Dissent, which has been much discussed in critical university studies. She's also a founding member of the advisory board of the U.S. Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, uh, U.S. ACPI. And, uh, and Sunayna Mehra is going to speak today under the title, A Long War of Position, Palestine BDS, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, and Besieging the Siege. And, and perhaps one could add, you know, a particularly timely uh, lecture well, today, because, so I know, I don't know if you check the news, you probably haven't because you've just woken up over there in California, but the, um, uh, yeah, the Conservative government in Britain, through the Queen's speech, is planning on bringing in legislation which is designed to outlaw certain kinds of boycott uh, decisions at, at, at local authority uh, level in this country. Um, but I also wanted to add that Professor Mayer's solidarity on the questions of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, at least certainly for me, have been very uh, valued over the years. So let's welcome uh, Professor Mayer, and the floor is yours. you OK? Yes, we can.
1: It's always a slightly surreal experience, but I wanted to thank you so much, um, uh, Professor chalcraft and also Nadine and all the organizers of this conference. And I really regret that I could not be there in person. And I'm so grateful to you for your flexibility in accommodating me to do this virtual um, session. I also want to note, um, you know, Professor Childcraft, that your organizing and that of your colleagues and comrades on the other side of the Atlantic has actually really been an inspiration to us all here. And so it's very humbling for me to be invited to give this talk today. I have so much to learn from all of you and from your wonderful papers, which Nadine shared with me. So today I want to focus on the boycott, investment and sanctions movement, in the US and discuss how its growth and successes can be understood through the Gramscian lens of a war of position, and so I I want to note honestly at the outset that I am not an expert in Gramsci's work, like all of you in that room there, and I'm really humbled, um, frankly, to be included in a conference that features so many wonderful very astute of Gramsci in relation to a variety of sites in West Asia and North Africa. I also want to acknowledge that I'm not primarily a Palestine Studies scholar, but while I had the privilege of living in Palestine, I was able to do a small ethnographic project on the Palestinian youth movement and hip hop, Um, and that was, you know, about Arab uprisings, but I am an activist scholar who has been engaged with the Palestine solidarity movement and a founding organizer of the U.S. campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, or U.S. ACPI. So, in this talk, I draw in part on my book "Boycott: The Academy and Justice for Palestine," which was the first book-length work focused on BDS as a social movement, and that in and of itself, I think, is a victory for the movement that the University of California Press wanted to publish this book, um, and so. Today, um, I actually am going to talk um, about how Gramsci's thought helps us understand the deeper shifts enabled by the academic boycott, in particular, in relation to three key themes, the war of position um, from his prison notebooks, of course, um, the long war of position, um, the history of BDS, and then the idea of common sense and of challenging Zionism um, in the academy. So I argue that Gramsci's theorizing of the war of position or the struggle to challenge dominant cultural beliefs is key to understanding the successes of the boycott as a social movement that has challenged the hegemony of Israel based on a set of popular and uncritical beliefs or common sense that normalize its policies. The moral fulcrum of the discourse about Palestine and Israel has shifted as it did in an earlier moment of international solidarity to greater support for the Palestinian struggle especially in a younger generation of Americans, including Jewish Americans, and has created a new critical consciousness. So the academic boycott movement has also enacted a spatial shift by reorienting the front of the Palestine Solidarity Movement to the academy. And I'm not gonna kind of recap all these different resolutions, but this is just in case you're interested to know what has happened um, in terms of academic boycott organizing in the US. It has drawn scholars and students into the BDS movement by targeting Israeli academic institutions not just Israeli corporations um, doing business in Israel, um, which are the targets of economic boycott and divestment. The former Mossad chief, um, Shabtai Shavid, who expressed deep worries about the future of the Zionist project due to a critical mass of threats, including BDS, specifically noted the importance of the academy and deplored. We are losing the fight for support for Israel in the academic world. And as you all know, the boycott has also spread to other countries such as India, countries in Europe, and most notably South Africa. Um, so this is significant because as Omar Barguti, who is a leader of the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel notes, Israel's academic institutions have after all been one of the pillars of Israel's regime of oppression, playing a major role in planning, implementing, justifying and whitewashing Israel's crimes against the Palestinian people. So the academic boycott of Israel is important, not just to due to its victories and boycott resolutions endorsed by all those professional academic associations on that slide, but as an instrument that clarifies political lines. It has enacted a discursive shift in the US public sphere that ruptures the dominant discourse about Israel as a lone democratic civilized state under siege by Palestinian terrorism, instead highlighting its status as a powerful well-funded highly militarized state and ally of us empire so that's why this cartoon this image by latouf increasingly the conversation about israel both in the academic and social justice movements frames it as a settler colonial project and apartheid state that must be challenged by leftists and progressives through this new or not so new critical common sense so, Gramsci conceptualized the war of position or cultural and intellectual struggle in contrast to the war of maneuver or direct war and open insurrection. The war of position is the slow, ongoing struggle over ideas and beliefs waged in the cultural front against the hegemony of the dominant class or ruled by consent of the masses in the absence of armed struggle, but which can nonetheless lead to or accompany militarized struggle and continue after it. Gramsci observed that in quotes advocacy of war of position does not entail a renunciation of revolution, only a change in its strategy and form, and I think that's the key point for BDS. The war of position is necessary in order to challenge dominant ideas about what is legitimate in the social order and establish a counter hegemony. It is in this sense that the boycott movement wages, a war of position, as it has helped reframe the ideological debate about the Palestine question in the US public sphere. So, Gramsci also argued the need for a war of position um, because advanced industrial states have the capacity to resist frontal attacks or the war of maneuvers using this military analogy. He observed that the superstructures of civil society are like the trench systems of modern warfare. And in quotes, in the most advanced states, civil society has become a very complex structure, one which is resistant to the catastrophic incursions of the immediate economic element, such as crises or depressions. This resilience is very much the case for both Israel and the U.S., who withstand national crises by resorting to nationalist narratives and propaganda about rallying the nation behind a united front with the aid of liberal nationalists or liberal Zionists who recuperate nationalist identity and invoke liberal democracy in the face of siege or criticism, which was evident in the U.S. after the attacks on the Capitol by white supremacists last january but israeli politicians have been increasingly worried by the damage done to israel's public image in the international community especially in the us its key supporters for example it has tied with north korea in global public opinion so that's not good it's defenders have gone so far as to describe bds and delegitimization campaigns as in quotes a strategic threat with potentially existential implications for israel Design is charge, while highly dramatic is interesting because it implicitly acknowledges the effectiveness of the BDS movement as challenging Zionism at its core. So the BDS movement that has expanded globally since it was called for in 2005 has waged this war of position using the language of international human rights and also in many instances, the more radical paradigms of anti racism anti militarism and anti colonialism critiquing the Zionist narrative through a political paradigm that has allowed it to connect to progressive, as well as leftist, racial and global justice movements. So a student activist involved with the UC Berkeley divestment campaign reflected in quote, something has shifted in the discourse and the sheer numbers of people who are concerned in the solidarity work and coalition building amongst a truly diverse and broad range of student and community groups. In this way, we are winning. So Israel has responded to the victories of the BDS movement through the language and metaphor of war, recognizing that its legitimacy is an important component of warfare for nation states and through Israeli policy reports about how to fight BDS, such as, you know, soft warfare against Israel. And the Root Institute an Israeli government think tank refers to Palestine justice advocates as delegitimizers of Israel and has called on Israeli state agencies to sabotage and attack the movement. And I was thinking of showing you a clip from this Al Jazeera investigative documentary film series, The Lobby, which focuses on how they sabotaged the divestment resolution in my campus at UC Davis. It's a very depressing episode, though, so we might skip it because I also don't want to take too much of your time, but it's notable that the war of legitimacy and counter normalization matters a great deal to Israel, because as a state that routinely violates international human rights law with support from the US, it recognized that sustaining this exceptionalism is about justifying this anomaly. Hence the anti BDS talking points that rewrite the critique of Israel by focusing on what they call the three D's, which is delegitimization, demonization and double standards supposedly apply to Israel. So the counter boycott movement has been funded and coordinated by the Israeli state, which, as you all probably know, has created programs to combat the growing influence through BDS, through propaganda efforts known as Hasbara, and by a well-funded brand Israel campaign launched in 2006, but all of these existed unofficially for some years previously. And the attacks in the BDS movement have been directed by Israel's Ministry of Internal and Strategic Affairs. In 2015, Netanyahu announced that the Israeli ministry would receive at least 100 million Israeli shekels, as well as 10 employees, that was at the time, solely to fight back against the BDS movement. And he proclaimed at an emergency meeting hosted by Republican billionaire Sheldon Addison, the largest donor to Trump's campaign, Delegitimization must be fought and you are on the front lines. So the Zionist movement has created a highly organized apparatus to counter BDS that also resorts to war opposition, right, deploy the, highly, deploy the liberal language of racial discrimination, diversity, dialogue, tolerance, inclusion, and has weaponized civil rights in the U.S. to suppress Palestine activism. The main discursive weapon in their arsenal is the spurious charge of anti-Semitism, conflating it with anti-Zionism. Indirectly invoking the European context of warfare and fascism, but trivializing actually existing antisemitism in order to silence critics of Israel. So this deployment of antisemitism as equated with anti-Zionism has been codified and institutionalized by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that has redefined it as a legally protected category of racial discrimination in the US, which has been invoked in several lawsuits against US universities, particularly in California, actually as well as by the infamous IHRA or International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition that has also been increasingly imposed in US universities. And I think you all are familiar with this in the UK too. The backlash in the US against the academic boycott and BDS more generally has been waged by a network of Zionist and right-wing organizations and by state legislatures and university administrators who uphold the legitimacy. But the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network or IJAN has wonderfully documented in a detailed research report called The Business of Backlash, in which they kind of trace the funding and the organizational links of this network. The rebranding efforts, spearheaded by the Israeli political leadership in conjunction with Jewish Zionist organizations worldwide, attempts to counter Israel's delegitimization through well-funded public relations events such as arts and cultural activities, science and technology programs, and a coordinated offensive strategy targeting universities. Liz Jackson, who is a movement lawyer working with Palestine Legal, an organization that advocates on the legal front uh, for Palestine activists, observes that as the student movement for justice in Palestine has expanded, the repression movement is maturing. But the flip side of the statement is also true, that is the extent of the repression reveals the power of the movement. And so this brings me to the long war of position, Um, because while much has been written and discussed by now about the backlash against Palestine activism, um, I don't want to rehash this. I do want to discuss briefly a less known aspect of the war of position related to BDS. That is the longer history of grassroots activism and solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle, particularly in the Arab diaspora in the U.S., this long war of position is something that Palestinians have been engaging in for decades, recognizing that armed resistance is extremely difficult for an encaged population subjected to disproportionate force and struggling with the asymmetry of power. BDS, of course, draws on this longer history of Palestinian civil disobedience, including boycotts dating back to the 1930s revolt against the British mandate and later boycotts of Israeli rule during the First Intifada, as documented extensively by Mazen Kumsieh, amongst others. There is also a little known history of organizing in the US in support of Palestinian liberation by Arab American activists, including Yemeni workers in Michigan after the 1967 and especially during the 1973 war. This activism grew out of struggles by Arab and Yemeni American workers in Detroit with labor, racism, and police brutality that has emerged from the intersections of class, racial and national oppression. And so it constitutes an inventory of traces in this generally unknown archive. And as Gramsci observed, a war of position requires building hegemony between working class and their allies and a mass democratic movement. This may not have happened consistently in relation to Palestine justice activism, so I do not want to overstate the implications of this moment of organizing. But I do want to note that in the early 1970s, Arab workers in the auto industry in Dearborn, in particular, where there were many Yemeni immigrants working at the Ford factory, organized with Arab leftists, including Palestinian student activists from the organization of Arab students um, and engaged in grassroots protests against Israel. In fact, they waged one of the earliest mass protests and militant actions for BDS in the US documented by Sally Howell and Nabil Abraham, who was himself a leftist activist at Wayne State at the time, and he published this really fascinating article about this movement in Merib in 1977. So in October 1973, during the war, there were public protests in Dearborn organized by the American Arab Coordinating Committee that unified Arab Americans in opposition to the war. 2000 Arab community members and auto workers marched to the United Auto Workers Local Sec 600 Hall, UAW local. What is extremely significant about this early BDS action is that it emerged from the context of Arab American labor organizing in Detroit's auto industry and led to the formation of the Arab Workers Caucus, modeled on a radical Black labor organization called DRUM, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement. So the Arab Coordinating Committee published an ad in a black newspaper in Detroit opposing the UAW locals' purchase of Israeli bonds in 1967 and the national UAW's purchase of almost a million dollars in Israeli bonds pointed Israel ties with South Africa as further reason for black workers to support divestment. This campaign was also a protest against the war in Vietnam as demonstrators held signs proclaiming no Vietnam in the Middle East. Highlighted the connections between Zionism and US imperialism in the context of the third worldist politics of the moment. Arab student activists from the Organization of Arab Students and leftist factions of the PLO were connected in Detroit to the Black Panthers, as well as Students for a Democratic Society or SDS, and according to Howell, were linking the economic struggles of immigrant workers to Arab nationalist and global politics. So the Arab Workers Caucus also organized a protest in November 1973 of the participation of the UAW president um, at a fundraising event for Israel hosted by the B'nai B'rith in Detroit, which bestowed on him a humanitarian award. Hundreds of Arab auto workers, mostly Yemeni and also some non-ar- non-Arabs, walked out of work to attend the protest, shutting down an assembly line. About 1,000 protesters outside fundraising dinner health signs such as bonds murder Black Brothers in South Africa, and Jewish people, yes, Zionism, no. So I was really struck when reading about this early protest by Arab immigrants that it was an instance of explicitly anti-Zionist activism, a focus that I think has declined somewhat in subsequent years in the US. Um, which, because the movement did not use the term Zionism for a couple of decades, but instead used the language of occupation and later apartheid. So, the second major insight that I want to draw from this episode, in addition to the embeddedness of Palestine activism and labor organizing, is that the longer history of BDS activism was attempting a shift in discourse and advancing a world of position. It is also important to acknowledge that these actions in Detroit were driven by a politics of solidarity in the context of Pan-Arab nationalism, of support by Yemeni immigrants for the Palestinian liberation struggle, who even suffered mass layoffs after the walkout in 73. I won't touch on this here, but there is of course, much to be said about the larger politics of cross-racial solidarity and third world internationalism that surged at historical moment with opposition to the Vietnam War, anti-colonial solidarity and especially the Black Panther's links with Arab nationalist struggles, including in Palestine. So these historic actions um, in Detroit built on earlier labor and anti-police organizing by Yemeni immigrants in Michigan, as well as California, marked by the infamous killing of Daifallah. A young Yemeni leftist activist with the United Farm Workers led by Cesar Chavez in California, he was murdered by the police in August 73 during the great boycott campaign and his death was commemorated at a protest. By Yemeni and Arab Americans in Dearborn, as was the murder of a Yemeni immigrant man in Detroit that sparked a demonstration at Detroit police headquarters, as documented by Pamela pennock in her book, the history of the Arab American left. These events also illuminate the longer history of Arab American organizing against police brutality and deepen the current debate spurred by Black Lives Matter and the abolitionist movement, as does the increased attention to contemporary transnational circuits of collaboration between Israeli and US police and casserole forces that also undergird calls for BDS and the support of the movement for Black Lives for Palestinian liberation. So in the context of this framing of BDS as a long war of position, I do want to acknowledge that the war of position waged by the BDS movement does come at a price for advocates of BDS and Palestine solidarity activists. Um, not to mention Palestinians, of course, um, as noted earlier, the counteroffensive against the BDS movement is highly orchestrated across national borders and uses tactics of defamation, surveillance and intimidation that exact a difficult cost for Palestine solidarity and Palestinian activists. As Gramsci profoundly stated, the truth is that one cannot choose the form of war one wants. The form of warfare that Zionists have increasingly waged is lawfare weaponizing civil rights legislation and utilizing their resources to harass and wear down activists through litigation. As the BDS movement has become more mainstream and Zionists have lost at the grassroots level, the relentless counteroffensive has been taken to the state level and into the courts. Nora Barrows Friedman, who has documented that incredible and courageous organizing by students of diverse backgrounds. I really recommend her book, by the way. It's just really, really powerful in our power. It's the first book-length work about the Palestine justice movement on campuses um, and focused on student activism. And Barros Friedman points out that strategies of surveillance, harassment, defamation, censorship, as well as disciplining by university administrators, including by a faculty, have been ratcheted up as the movement in the academy has been strengthened. And I think the concept of siege is obviously applicable here because the movement often does feel like a space that is besieged. As Gramsci observed, siege warfare is concentrated, difficult, and requires exceptional qualities of patience and inventiveness. In politics, the siege is a reciprocal one, despite all appearances, and the mere fact that the ruler has to master all his resources demonstrates how seriously he takes his adversary. And so this applies to BDS in two ways. One, the huge sacrifice entailed by threats to job security, defamation, harassment, intimidation, bullying, lawfare, and so on. Second, as mentioned earlier, Israel has created a huge infrastructure of control and censorship to counter BDS. So it's, it's also expending its resources. And so Gramsci's statement about siege is really interesting because one can also apply the notion of siege to the adversary, that the BDS movement has laid siege to Israel's political and military siege. And of course, I thought immediately of Mahmoud Darwish's and besiege my siege. So, um, the last um, sort of theme that I want to discuss um, is, you know, the notion of common sense. Because, as you know, Gramsci also writes um, on a more hopeful note, observing in politics, the war of position once won is decisive, definitively. My own reading of this in relation to BDS is that there is no turning back on the discursive and epistemic shifts that have been won by the ongoing slow and difficult work of organizing for boycott and divestment in countless local and national sites in the US over the last decade. It is in this regard that I think Gramsci's notion of common sense and philosophy from the prison notebooks are key to understanding and appraising the decisive victories exemplified by the transformation of the Palestine question in the academy here. So while Palestine was a leftist cause framed through the paradigm of national liberation against colonialism in the 60s and 70s during the third Worldist um, era, the Zionist consensus has for years been established as a norm, making it controversial, including in the academy to simply speak about the Palestinian struggle or even just criticize the occupation, the silencing of criticism of Israel that occurred in the left led to the unfortunate label progressive except for Palestine or PEP. However, the lockdown and criticism of Israel has been increasingly challenged, as has the allegation that criticism of Israel or Zionism is automatically anti-Semitic. A charge that was used in lieu of a political or moral argument so the attempt to at making this conflation of anti-semitism and anti-zionism a political common sense has been actually dismantled by jewish anti-zionist activists and organizations such as jewish voice for peace so the bds movement has ruptured the sanctioned narrative about palestine which includes the history of colonization and the movement has been has propelled a new framework that first re-centers palestinian rights as integral to left movements for global and social justice and second uses the frameworks of settler colonialism apartheid and anti racism to challenge foundational narratives of Zionism. So in addition to political shifts in the US, I think the call for boycott must also be situated in the political conjunction Palestine created by the Oslo Accords of 93 94 and the national crisis it created for Palestinians. As has been discussed in several wonderful papers in this conference. Oslo, as you all know, represented for many Palestinians the betrayal of the national struggle for self-determination. It also compromised on the right of return of refugees and the rights of Palestinian citizens in Israel, creating a framework that gave up on these two groups of Palestinians and splintered the national struggle. So the emergence of BDS represented a rejection of the Oslo paradigm that was a major factor in the waning and pacification of Palestinian national resistance. The BDS paradigm challenges Oslo, as its three principles listed here, unify Palestinians from the West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem, and inside Israel within a movement based on shared national struggle, struggle, challenging Zionist policies of colonization, displacement, and enclosure that have fostered partitioning and political division amongst Palestinians. So BDS has attempted to revive grassroots mobilization outside of the Palestinian National Parties and beyond the language of statehood and neoliberal democracy promoted by the Palestinian Authority. Thus, it represents an important political intervention in the post-Oslo movement of fatigue and the spatial shrinking of the Palestinian movement. It is just one plank, though, in an autonomous non-sectarian movement to expand the horizon of the Palestinian national struggle. It is one to which many Palestinians of diverse ideological persuasions, religious backgrounds, and generational and geographic locations belong. So to wrap up, I want to note that in the US, the boycott is part of the larger struggle for academic abolitionism, or the movement to decolonize the university through radical transformation and resistance from within. The BDS campaigns that I listed in national academic associations and the work of US ACB have united faculty and graduate students from various disciplines and fields, re-energizing a politics of internationalism and transnational solidarity. These campaigns have allowed academics to publicly and collectively reject collaboration with Israeli academic institutions and to take a principled stand in condemning Israel's occupation wars and, in some cases, its colonial policies too. This politics of refusal is part of larger efforts by scholars to transform the university into a site of struggle against militarization and racial and class oppression and to challenge us imperial power and its proxies. So the boycott has been an important tool for winning political space and enlarging intellectual space through this war of position in the academy another component of this academic struggle that i want to touch on is that of academic employment rights in a context in which the university increasingly relies on contingent or part-time faculty and full-time tenure-track jobs are ever more scarce there's a greater precarity of academic labor palestine is at the center of this condition of academic insecurity given the ongoing denial of employment, promotions, grant funding and fellowships to scholars engaged in BDS or critical of Israel. The repression enacted through the policing of research, teaching and speech related to Palestine and Israel is also part of the arresting of research agendas, the neoliberalization of the university and an alignment of the university with corporate interests. Powerful off-campus lobby groups and private organizations have colluded with university administrators in the restructuring of the academy especially under Trump, but also for many years previously. The Palestine question is often the funnel of this neoliberal restructuring of the academy, as well as the erosion of the right to education. The flip side, however, of this academic discussion is that Palestine is also at the center of challenges to the US academic establishment and the neoliberalization that makes academic labor so precarious. The assaults on the right to academic freedom and the right to teach have provoked powerful movements defending academic labor rights and academic freedom such as that in defense of Palestinian scholar Stephen Salaita, that includes support for the boycott as one plank of academic resistance. For example, Jody Rosenberg, who has been involved with USACB, reflected that BDS campaigns in graduate student labor unions have reinvigorated academic labor activism and helped push back against mainstream union politics. In fact, in 2014, The UAW local 2865 in my own campus, which represents thousands of graduate employees at the University of California, became the first mainstream union in the United States to endorse divestment, followed by the first endorsement of BDS by a national labor union, which was the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers. Um, So I consider this progressive left academic solidarity forged in relation to BDS along different axes of struggle to be an expression of academic abolitionism suggests a radical university <laughs> that does not simply ask for more freedom for US academics, however, such as just to teach more courses critical of Israel alongside other courses endorsing Israel, but to strengthen a new philosophy, challenging the common sense about Israel and Zionism. So I will wrap up by just stating that an abolitionist view in the academy challenges the complicity of the US university with global militarism, Castro regimes, and settler colonial circuits of power in which Israel is a key player. The BDS movement has been part of of strengthened cross-movement alliances with other progressive left mass movements forged before Trump that have continued to expand, for example, resistance to white supremacy and fascism, sanctuary activism in solidarity with undocumented migrants, Protests of the US Mexico border wall and solidarity with indigenous rights and environmental justice activists, not to mention support for Black Lives Matter and protests against police violence and mass incarceration. Radical academic activism and boycott campaigns can also do the crucial work of highlighting links between settler universities in the United States and in Palestine, in tandem with the growing scholarship that traces the links between settler colonization in North America and in Palestine. Supporting the boycott and BDS also requires a commitment by US scholars to decolonial politics and solidarity with indigenous peoples here. In his book, um, Internationalism, Sanaita makes the important point that BDS needs to be attentive to local politics wherever it is practiced, and in North America, BDS should be more attuned to the wide-ranging and ongoing efforts to decolonize the continent. The academic boycott movement and the solidarity and struggle it engenders are thus also movements to decolonize the settler university here and elsewhere. Thank you.